Welcome to the Design Matters podcast, where we discuss popular topics and new ideas in design. Our student hosts look to create insightful conversations with today's leaders of design in the built environment. My name is John Bazook. I'm an architecture student with the University of Calgary School of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture. I'm Emily Kang, a student with Landscape Architecture Program at the University of Calgary. This season, we are looking at how we can listen to understand, rather than listen to respond, with the intentions of emerging as more compassionate designers. How can we identify design biases and exclusions found in our built environment? We seek to learn from people related to each theme and to begin thinking about proposed possibilities for landing on definitive solutions. Our objective is to examine design decisions that have shaped our physical world. We are interested in bringing awareness to these decisions and to challenge current design standards. As future designers, we want to investigate how to listen. Today's episode asks the question, how can we overcome design biases in Western education? What are some assumptions we make as designers? And how do they affect the relationships between social and environmental inequities in design education? We have invited four guests to the show today to answer four questions that break down this heavy topic. We ask them to introduce themselves before sharing their thoughts. My name is Bushra Hashim. I am a 24-year-old Pakistani-Canadian based out of Calgary, Alberta currently. I have completed my Bachelor of Arts uh, in Urban Studies, my Master of Architecture, and I'm currently working on my thesis through the Master of Environmental Design at SAPL, looking at intellectual ableism within the built environment. My name is Vivian Todd. I'm a Master of Architecture student from the University of Calgary School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Over the summer, in the wake of the Black Lives Matters protests, my peers and I founded a student organization called Advocates for Equitable Design Education, which we've been mobilizing the past few months to bring to light issues of equity within design pedagogy and practice. We also have two practicing and teaching landscape architects. First, Maria del Sol Galdon. I'm a registered landscape architect here in the province of Alberta. I have a master's in landscape architecture from UBC, Vancouver, and I currently run my own practice, mainly focused on residential design build, but I have worked at a couple of other firms, particularly at O2 Planning and Design for an extensive amount of time. I'm Martha Schwartz. I'm a landscape architect. I have a practice called Martha Schwartz Partners. I would say my practice has started off on the basis that landscape architecture uh, is an opportunity to create art in the landscape. The first question we asked is, how can we pivot our Western design education to be more inclusive of global practices? Let's start with Bushra's response. I think the best way to do this is conversation. Like to an extent, it's also a matter of starting from scratch. And I mean that twofold. It's an exercise of unlearning to some degree, both at the individual level and at the institutional level. At least throughout my education, there's been very little opportunities or approaches of ways of thinking other than the Western way of thinking that's kind of been outlined for us through the syllabus, through, you know, the classes that we're learning, the histories we're learning, um, and the kind of problems we're kind of tackling through studio projects, for example. So I came, you know, I came from a first generation immigrant family and the sole purpose for my parents to upheave everything they've ever known was for our futures, for a better education. But growing up, you're very much learning kind of two different ways of knowledge keeping and interpreting the world 
world around you through like the formative years of your life. So to see that the majority of this education, especially architectural education, where you kind of want your career to end up be solely kind of Western influence, it really does a lot in terms of, you know, forming how we should be approaching architectural problems, kind of gets this mindset going to the West is best. And you kind of have to start ditching a lot of what culturally you've been brought up to believe in, like in the ways of thinking. So that kind of extends beyond architecture as well. Directly speaking to design pedagogy, I think it's quite critical to disseminate how the idea of quote-unquote design has been shaped and understood within the Western consciousness, and how such definitions might include or exclude global and Indigenous ways of knowing and building as well. I know a lot of students who came to design school from other disciplines sort of recognize this lapse, like the question of pivoting from an education that centers the Western as the starting off point for interpreting design necessarily needs to move away from casting all other cultures and global practices as these mere sort of peripheral entities that constitute the non-Western. It's not a matter of simply teaching, say, the history of modernism through a Eurocentric history and then having a single lecture on the entirety of Asian and Islamic architecture to check the box. What I mean is really situating what we understand to be Western as a part of global relations mentioned in the question and addressing these practices not in isolation, but how they actually affect and are affected by civilization and cultures that exist at the same time. Um, Any sort of real shift begins in a renewed interest in history and theory within the curriculum, with the questioning of Western or North American or Global North or Canadian ideals of spatial practice and standards of living, and about examining how these values become consecrated in our landscapes and habitats, um, as well as our professionalization of these practices through pedagogy and accreditation. And I think we talk a lot about this meta-narrative, especially in Canada, of the culture mosaic But um, when we look at sort of the history of this country, we have to ask whether our spaces of home, recreation, and work, if it actually reflects the diversity and complexity of of the composition of our demographics and whether our design education can actually prepare us to understand and work with communities that are different from the ones we grew up in. Sort of understanding how to make hybrid ways of life by using design tools in themselves. I would say I'm a strong believer that we learn by example (laughs) and we really, I believe, and maybe from my personal experience, we learn by immersing ourselves in certain situations or experiences or whatnot. And I think in order to be truly inclusive as a designer, as a practitioner, as an educator, or even as a student, again, that really immersing ourselves putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes to understand the issue, to really come up with the strongest, most viable solution, I think is very important. Having said that, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do or to formulate or to practice necessarily, but when possible, I think it should be pushed, acknowledged. So in terms of education and say more in terms of design education, ideas of studying abroad or cross-cultural studio experiences, even within one faculty, the fact that engineers are working with architects or whatnot, and then taking that globally, that we're working with different cultures, different regions, different um, understandings of concepts and that practices of all levels with different ways of living wherever possible in in that massive spectrum I think is key. The education does not is not really inclusive 
You know, it's still from the point of view of the settlement of the white people, you know, all that history is still history. And I think that we have not really been able to, let's say, roll with the punches. I, and I'm talking about white people. But um, I also think that how, how could we be more inclusive is if we opened up to the world as though we're interested. In other words, we have to come down and say, look, we are part of the world. We're not just this giant island. Unless you can actually actively get out of the United States and look around you and look at different countries and countries have different languages and different customs. And you know, there's still there are these definitions that are fascinating and interesting. And you can see that they seem to be doing very well without being Americans. You know, it's, it, it's an education. There's an, it's an education unto itself is to go different places and see different people and see what their lives are like. And you kind of compare it to where you're from, but it's an opening that really can't be done unless you can actually go and, and explore. And our educators should really try to engage this, what you're suggesting is an awareness of other places, really. And, and the thing is, is that the world is now a small place in so many ways, but there is no real substitution for just going and seeing all these other places. And especially if you're like on a huge island as we are. We are really, really separated from the world by these oceans. And it's not just physical, it's really mental, psychological. We're, we, and in one sense, that's a good thing, but in many senses, it's not so good for us. Question two, what are some harmful conscious or unconscious design biases in Western education? I guess to my earlier point about understanding the history of design production in the Western context, we, we know there exists a huge erasure of the lived experiences and knowledges of many cultural groups um, we see as a result of biases in the education. Some of these issues, which include but are not limited to gender parity, racial equality, diversity and inclusion, are endemic to many sectors of society, but within architecture and design, progress has been as at a snail's pace. In comparison to areas like STEM and in law, we still see this centering valorization of the cisgendered, straight, white male body as sort of the origin to which all other bodies and identities are peripheral when it comes to environmental design. Like whiteness, maleness, it's visible at the helm of many operations, and that visibility makes up what we see as sort of people being deserving of major accolades in design as well. We all know about the cult of the architect and sort of the European um, composition of that. Like I mentioned that the West is best, and I mean, I remember thinking through even architectural history course taught through the sapo, like, why are they all the old white men? You know, like, this is such a rich, there's such a rich architectural history around the world and practices that a lot of Western thinkers had adopted from and appropriated to some extent, right? Like, it's like, there's so much entanglement within history of how architecture came to be and how it's kind of come to where it has. So why are we not learning more of that? 
some of the more rooted kind of uh, where some of these practices are actually rooted in, like we're talking about indigenous cultures from around the world or like things like that really start to help us understand and like stop creating those divides within design to say that, you know, whatever's been kind of being done in the West is what should be done everywhere else in the world because we're more advanced or some kind of like narratives around that. So like architects like Frank Gehry and Mies van der Rohe were kind of praised for not having like formal architectural education and like, you know, other architects like that, but you're still, and still putting out revolutionary work with little to no heed paid to Indigenous architecture, who built with the earth and the sky itself, or from slums and shantytown who were built on the foundations of like despair and poverty in India or Hong Kong. So those are the kind of values that design, the Western design is biased in or lacks, you know, that same depth of knowledge, I believe. And these are what's this unconscious design bias that's being taught in Western education, I think. As designers, there's an ego that goes along with that. <laughs> and I mean, that that's what makes us great designers or not so great. It could really work in our favor because we, we truly believe something is of essence in design. You know, we push it forward and then our ego helps us push that. But, you know, we're very sensitive as designers with our ego because it can easily get crushed because... Design is our baby and we experience that right from students, right? And I think that's probably one of the hardest things is to sort of remove that ego from our work, from ourselves, from our projects, from, and really sometimes acknowledging that we may not have the right answer. But at the same time, it's, it's a balance because if we're too passive as designers, we're not going to promote or push what we truly believe and what we truly know, you know? How do, not to be rude, but how do we fight with an engineer if we're not a little bit aggressive, right? Or an architector. But um, it's important for us to really have that sense, I don't know if ego, but drive, I guess. And that's important in our profession. But also being able to really remove it, take that out ourselves and learn from others and really collaborate. Our work is always about collaboration. So I think sometimes unconsciously, we think, well, I have the answer. I have seven years of school and I have 15 years of professional practice and what I say, I know is right. Being aware that, well, that's not usually a reality. I, I do a lot of volunteer work uh, in more like third world countries or whatnot and uh, not design educated and <laughs> related, but I learned so much just from those kind of cultures and, and just knowing that it humbles you. I think um, more than empathy, maybe it's more humble, the word. Yeah, be accepting and, and understanding. I think that's the conscience and our conscious. We do it with the best intention, but sometimes we don't have the, the, the best results. And to be aware of that, I think is important. Modernism kind of really turned into what we have now, which is kind of a, a sculpture competition between architects that often have absolutely nothing to do with their context or the city that they're sitting in, which has turned out to be a pretty shitty thing. I mean, really, really not a good strategy if you want to build a bigger thing like a city that has a context and isn't all about me, 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 me. Architects still see themselves, and this is really true, they really see themselves and they have been told and trained through this legacy that they are the master artists. And that is still how our school works. It's still there, loud and clear. Landscape architecture, urban design are little animals that are scurrying underneath the, you know, the weeds. 
And then there is Papa Architect. And that is, that's the problem. It's so clear that is the problem. And that they design the world. And then the little people, they get to manipulate and to command because it's their vision. So that has not actually worked out so well in terms of making coherent cities or really helping to create, let's say, some kind of equity and social equity or the idea of inclusivity, where we're actually designing for a bigger intent, which is to make a city. As landscape architects, we're like little kind of little puppies or dogs that are kind of galloping after the architects. That's a bummer. Question three, where do these biases come from and who do they serve? Who is steering our design education narrative? There is this sort of tendency to treat design as more of a technical exercise rather than being tied to like political and policy motivated intentions, which I think really draws you away from important questions. You know, there's so many people who are uncomfortable addressing these issues of systemic and systematic discrimination, which comes from many places, you know, like uncertainty of where they might fall in the conversation, fear of backlash. And it's, of course, a complex dialogue, but there's also others that actively deny the existence of these grievances and or they profit off the continued privilege that enacting these discriminations actually provides. Like perhaps when talking to who is really steering the, the educational narrative, we can speak like in the abstract that the professional disciplines of design, architecture, and planning are these historically complicit entities to systems of oppression that enact capital and state violence all the time. When we look at the traditional role of these occupations, their service to clients such as the state, the church, the corporation, and real estate, all of which use design to produce certain ordering logics of material, labor, capital, space, and bodies that are also intertwined with racial, ethnic, and gendered politics of inclusion and exclusion. We see examples such as urban renewal to the gated suburb, inner city gentrification to industrial free trade zones, the park systems and native reserves, for example. And there's a conversation about who and how and why certain people are allowed to exist in these spaces, who's making those decisions and the role of designers in facilitating the production of those conditions. They serve the Western narrative capitalist and white-centric ego. I think you're kind of really agreeing to kind of learn or work within this capitalist system that we kind of have going on here with little to no, like, I guess, as I mentioned, he paid to other ways of thinking. Um, that other knowledge is less than what's been medically proven in textbooks or what has been designed as what has been defined as proper 
shelter, right? So as, and our design education has been steered by the very people who formed this narrative to begin with, right? There were guests who invited from short lectures for design matters, for example, through this education, um, or now through Zoom as geographic barriers become obsolete. But throughout like my, my entire architectural education, not a single professor was someone of color. So you realize at a certain point that it's not only them, but also as students who fall into the wheels of that vehicle that sits on a pedestal of white knowledge, you know, like you're kind of just serving that narrative that you're kind of just being forced to kind of consume, you know, you're a student, you're in a course, it's kind of being set out for you in a syllabus. So it's really tough to kind of challenge that narrative. But I think that's what I'm saying in terms of there needs to be change both at the individual as well as the institutional level to kind of figure out how we should navigate our design education narrative to be more, you know, open and more inclusive towards other ways of thinking rather than just the Western ways of thinking. We do have a bias, but who do they serve? They certainly, they mainly serve us, right? Because when we go and um, input our designs, uh, yes, we're working for a client, but they serve us at some level. <laughs> and, um, and we can't help it, right? Is that from... Um, I don't know, but thing anything is like, is that going to be a portfolio project? Am I interested in that? Or things like that as designers are biased and we're looking to serve ourselves, whether it's our ego, whether it's our portfolio, whether it's our personal essence of creating something. So where do they come from? Society, ourselves, you know, we're creating these biases and we have been. And uh, I think slowly, you know, sometimes we do break away from them. What can I say? white European men. <laughs> That's where it came from. People will go to architects to do the damnedest things like planning cities and where the ego is really number one. You have to express yourself and the, therefore you design a city that reflects yourself. I mean, it's like, what? So I think things are going to change in the future. I really believe that, not because we're really sick and tired of white European men you know, telling us what to do, but out of need. Question four, how do we repair the relationships between social and environmental inequities in design education? You know, we certainly talk a lot about consulting with communities and participatory design in the abstract, but I certainly think this is some experience that design students need to be equipped with through their education, which is at present not happening with enough rigor. There's still this vestigial mentality of the the romanticized ambition of the designer being this savior, genius, master builder who knows best, but I think we know that that illusion is largely dead. So being conscientious of your own positionality and power in relation to the communities that you're designing with is really important um, in order to limit gaps in understanding and to also achieve spatial outcomes that are co-created and inclusive. So part of the reason that my peers and I formed Advocates for Equitable Design Education is because we felt like there was a repoliticization of design that was needed to encourage students and faculty and the public to have more frank and open conversations about their intertwining and to raise social consciousness about how design decisions in fact can contribute to the, the production of inequality and injustice. 
So I think just on a personal level that throughout my architectural education, if I had not taken the initiative to have, you know, studio projects, for example, and papers, et cetera, to be more socially environmentally driven, you know, past the layers of universal access and greenwashing that we're kind of typically um, conditioned to do, you know, like the ramp, you need to have a ramp um, of this slope or you need to have elevators because your building needs to have, you know, physical accessibility standards ingrained into it, like past those things, you know, Part of what some of these inequalities between the social and like the social environmental inequalities in design education need to be addressed from the education level, because I think a large part of what you're learning in school does influence what you're going to be doing out in the work field. So to kind of have more of a social and environmental focus throughout education should be something that's prioritized, you know, and I think Sapple is like consciously making a decision to go more towards the technological side of things, you know, robots or 3D printing or things like that. But at the end of the day, you really need to know that those are just merely tools to, to achieve something. And again, I'm not, you know, bashing technology or anything like that, but they are just tools at the end of the day to achieve what the basic need of architecture is. And there's so much potential to kind of have social and environmental narratives behind what you're doing, I think, tangibly, like with technology. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, that's probably the toughest. I think it's that to, to really grasp it, you have to live it. <laughs> you have to immerse in it to really understand it. The only answer that I have is immersing ourselves in a true essence in every aspect from emotional to the physical to um, it to every essence that we can to really gain perspective in a much broader spectrum. And I think that's the only way we're slowly going to start to battle those inequities. How do we do it? Well, I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind is that we have to recognize it. We have to really take it on. And we all have to personally believe that this is a really important thing to do. I mean, I I think that, of course, people who are in positions to make changes have the responsibility to do that. I mean, the people who are, you know, the chairman or, you know, the, you know, whatever is, you know, in higher up, you know, positions need to take that on. However, we can always push and advocate no matter where we are, and say what you think. And I think advocacy is really, really important. I I really believe that, especially now, it's a time where we have to get out and advocate for things. I think everybody has an ability to make change in some way. And you try to figure out, well, how you can do that. Like, what what are your skill sets? I mean, you know, what kinds of things are you good at that you could apply? to really get to what it is that you want to say or do. So what I got out of our interviews for this episode was this renewed demand for more interdisciplinary work between professions. And what's really exciting is the possibility of having cross-cultural studios I think to make it part of our pedagogy to be more immersive and inclusive in our studios would be very enriching. And there is a recognition that Western education has favored the white, male, Eurocentric, and very capitalistic ways of thinking at the expense of devaluing indigenous or other global cultures. 
Both practitioners have pointed out that advocacy for social justice, for environmental justice, these things don't stop with our time at school. We should start there, but it also needs to continue throughout our working and professional lives if we are to design and create the spaces that embody those values. I think it was an interesting point when the guests talked about pedagogy and accreditation. Uh, Perhaps the demands of accreditation prevents our school from being more proactive or pivoting quickly from within. Do we need to re-examine the accreditation that our schools has to comply with? Our school is very technically focused. What's the point of having these design skills if we're not learning who we're designing for or how to listen to who we're designing for or how to engage with those who need our skills? Potentially by loosening or updating what is the matter of us to learn in terms of this accreditation, there could be more focus put on immersion of cultural studies, for instance, rather than technical digital exercises. Today's episode was produced by John Bazook and Emily Kang in partnership with CJSW. Research was also done by John Bazook and Emily Kang. Music by Vikram Johal. Credits read by Emily Kang. Big thanks to all our guests for coming onto our podcast. A special thanks to Catherine Hamill for her mentorship this season. And of course, Vida Leung and the University of Calgary's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape Architecture for all their support. Coming up next, we will be asking the question, is universal design for everyone? What are some of the design biases and where are places that lack universal design? Stay tuned to hear from our next panel of guests. Thanks for listening today. And if you're looking for more information about our guests today and the Design Matters lecture series, you can head over to our website at sapl.ucalgary.ca. You know, I've talked to people like from the West Coast who have never been to the East Coast and vice versa. The question is, well, why should I go someplace? And like, uh, maybe because you're curious.